It is July 17th, 2017. My name is Joel Tillis, and you are in the Soul Track. We trust that wherever, whenever this broadcast finds you, it finds you in good health, good spirits, and most of all, on that good and narrow way. It is good to be back with you. We appreciate your patience at the Soul Trap. Uh, we have been busy with our youth, uh, had a wonderful summer camp, got to spend time with our youth and preaching and teaching and slip and slides and water slides and fun and games and all that kind of stuff, and it was worth it. We had a great time with our youth at the church, but uh, it is very good to be back in the saddle, looking forward to uh, getting back into the groove, not just here at the Soul Trap, but at the church, just in regular day-to-day life. I like camp and I like teenagers. I also like when camp and teenagers are over, if you know what I mean. But um, we're glad to be back, and I trust that you had a wonderful summer. We're about halfway through our summertime here, and are looking forward to a lot of exciting things coming our way. I want to encourage you to make sure to check out The Soul Trap on Facebook. Uh, you can message us there. You can reach us via email at pastortillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. That's pastortillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. Message us, share us, like us. Uh, try to get the word out as much as you can about The Soul Trap. We appreciate each and every one of you listening. And again, I do appreciate your patience. Uh, I know it's been a while since we've had a podcast, but we hopefully intend to do several coming up really, really soon. And starting today, I think we have some interesting, at least some thought-provoking podcast shows for you that'll get you thinking a little bit and uh, get your mind processing. I think a lot of you think the way that I do, which is why you listen. And so I think a lot of times it's just, just thinking about the same thing together, and I always enjoy that. A very good friend of mine who is the voice and brains behind BND3, it's a podcast group, a Facebook uh, group that I really suggest that you follow, uh, Tori Snow, he always says when he and I are talking shop, he always says whenever the right hand is doing something, look out, it means there's usually something going on in the left. And as simple as that statement might sound, it is so profoundly true. Epperson, in his famous book, The Unseen Hand, states in no uncertain terms that there are really only two ways of looking at the affairs that we see and don't see unfolding. They are the product of randomness and chance, or to some degree, to whatever degree you want to ascribe, there is and has been a force at work to move things in a direction that suits those at the highest level of power. Benjamin Franklin would say there are those who are the moved and those who are the movers. Sometimes a story comes across the line, comes across the news, and we can only wonder about how much we are being told and wonder even more about how much we should know and should be told. Such is the case to me of the story of the collision of the USS Fitzgerald, a U.S. destroyer. It's a story that has found itself shuffled to the bottom of the stack with all the breaking news about North Korea and Russia and wiretappings and news reporters uh, bleeding from their facelifts and uh, Donald Trump Jr. and all the rest of the stuff that is going on and Jared Kushner, all that garbage that is permeating our mind. But for some reason, with all that is out there, I, I cannot seem to shake this story. Something really bothers me about the story of the USS Fitzgerald and what we are not being told. 
It's called a maritime mystery. Why a U.S. destroyer failed to dodge a cargo ship. Scott Shane writes an article, dateline June 23, 2017. In the article he writes, there should have been lookouts on watch on the port, starboard, and stern of the destroyer Fitzgerald. Sailors scanning the horizon with binoculars and reporting by headsets to the destroyer's bridge. At 1.30 a.m. last Saturday off the coast of Japan, south of Tokyo, they could hardly have failed to see the 730-foot freighter ACX Crystal, stacked with more than a 1,000 containers as it closed in on the destroyer. Radar officers working both on the bridge and in the combat information center below it should have spotted the freighter's image on their screens, drawing steadily closer. And under standard protocol, the Fitzgerald's captain, Commander Bryce Benson, should have been awakened and summoned to the bridge to assure a safe passage along, a safe passage long before the ships could come near each other. All of this that should have been done, but none of it happened. The Fitzgerald's routine cruise in good weather through familiar, if crowded seas ended in the most lethal Navy accident in years. Seven sailors lost their lives. As investigators try to figure out what many veteran seamen describe as an incomprehensible collision, they have plenty of mysteries to unravel. In addition to the questions for the destroyer's crew, there is the peculiar course of the crystal after the accident, recorded by ship tracking websites. It raises a possibility that no one was awake or at least aware of their surroundings when the two ships hit. Rather than cut engines and assess the damage and look for ways to assist, the crystal quickly resumed its former course, steaming toward Tokyo Harbor for a half hour before suddenly executing a U-turn and returning to the crash site, as if the ship's crew had belatedly realized what had happened. Now, seriously... I'm ready to give somebody the benefit of the doubt just as quickly as another man, but do you really mistake hitting a destroyer? How does one not recognize that your ship has collided with another ship? That's not a common occurrence. That's certainly not something that you sleep through. The article goes on to state, Investigators have spent the past week surveying the damage, reviewing logs, recovering electronic records, a black box aboard the crystal, and stored radar data from the Fitzgerald. They're also interviewing detailed interviews of crew members. Of course, under strict orders not to talk about what they saw that night, the crew of the Fitzgerald is mostly keeping its counsel while grieving the loss of its shipmates. But one sailor contacted via social media offered what may endure as an epitaph for the accident. Quote, All I can say is, the sailor wrote to the New York Times, somebody wasn't paying attention. What? Really? Somebody wasn't paying attention? You've got a USS destroyer and somebody wasn't paying attention? And that is the answer that we're being given? In what universe does that possibly make any sense whatsoever? The path of the container ship that struck a U.S. Navy destroyer is one of the strangest that there is, and part of the mystery of the whole situation. One article writer wrote the following. On Friday, Rear Admiral Brian Ford, a veteran warship commander, was ordered to lead the Navy's main investigation of the collision. 
The multiple investigations now underway, two by the Navy, one by the United States Coast Guard, others by the Japanese Coast Guard and the Crystal's insurers, will probably provide answers. Of course, of course they'll provide answers. But even if the Crystal crew was asleep, Navy veterans say the far more maneuverable Fitzgerald will likely bear much of the blame. This is the kind of thing the Navy is brutally honest about, says Brian McGrath, who commanded a destroyer in the Atlantic from 2004 to 2006. To the extent that the Fitzgerald did anything wrong, we'll find out all about it, and there will be consequences. The two ships now sit in ports a short drive apart on the coast south of Tokyo. The 9,000-ton, $1.5 billion Fitzgerald at Yokosuka Naval Base, its home port, and the 29,000-ton Crystal at Yokohama. The Fitzgerald has a section of its starboard side caved in where the crystal smashed directly into Commander Benson's stateroom, tearing it open and leaving him injured. Sailors had to bend the back had to bend back the door of his cabin to free him and get him inside the ship. The United States Naval Institute News reported this. Beneath the waterline, the container's ship Flared bow also tore a large gash in the destroyer's hole, officials said. As seawater poured in, some 116 crew members were asleep in two flooded berthing rooms. The ship's radio room was damaged and much of its communication gear ruined or left without power. Sailors fought the flooding for an hour before sending out distress calls, the Institute said. Remember that timeline now. It was an hour before anybody knew anything had happened. The article goes on to state that bodies of the seven men who died were recovered by divers from flooded spaces sealed off to keep the ship from foundering, a wrenching decision by officers in the chaotic aftermath of the crash. There are many signs that the Fitzgerald had almost no warning of the approaching collision. The fact that the captain was in his cabin and that no shipwide alarm had rousted sailors from their bunks. As to how much warning they had, I don't know, said Vice Admiral Joseph Akun, commander of the 7th Fleet, at a news conference on Sunday. That's going to have to be found out during the investigation. Less is known about what happened aboard the Crystal, which had been chartered by a Japanese company to bring cargo from Nagoya on Japan's central coast to Tokyo, manned by a Filipino crew. Filipino crew. Uh just by way of rabbit trailing, one of the largest population of Muslims, the Philippines. Manned by a Philippine crew, it was far less damaged than the Fitzgerald. On Wednesday afternoon, a large blue tarp hung from a gash in the front of the ship. Large scratches were visible on the port side, and a section of the bow was crumpled. Stephen Watkins, an information technology security consultant who writes for Jane's Intelligence on ship tracking said the path of the crystal, as posted from its automatic identification system, looks like an automated course. Instead of stopping so the crew could investigate what had happened, the ship corrected its course and kept accelerating toward Tokyo, he said. It looks very much like the computer was driving, he said. But the fact that after more than 30 minutes, the crystal reversed course and returned to the accident scene, suggests the captain or crew took control of the ship from the autopilot. Mr. Watkins said it took them 55 minutes to get back to the spot of the collision, and that's when they called the Japanese Coast Guard, he said. 
Whether the investigations will confirm the informed speculation of Mr. Watkins remains to be seen. But a number of Navy veterans who joined a lively online debate said that even the most distracted performance by the Crystal's crew could not justify or explain the Fitzgerald, the USS Destroyer's failure to get out of the way. Quote, it looks horrible, said Gary Meyer, owner of a tech company in New Jersey, who served on the Navy ship San Diego and posted a YouTube commentary on the accident. You have three lookouts and your running radar, Mr. Meyer said. That ship can really accelerate and maneuver. It doesn't mean they caused the collision, but they're at fault for not avoiding it. Stephen Morawick of Sparta, Wisconsin, who spent 22 years in the Navy and many times took charge of his ship at night as the officer of the deck, said the failure to summon the captain was incomprehensible. Quote, on my ship, if another ship was expected to get within 4,000 yards, you had to have the captain there beside you, he said. If you didn't wake the captain when you were supposed to, you were toast. An anonymous article under the pseudonym Tyler Durden writes, U.S. destroyer ignored warning ahead of deadly collision. The news agency is reporting exclusively that the USS Fitzgerald ignored the much larger cargo ship's repeated warning to get out of its path of travel. In the first detailed account from one of those directly involved, reportedly, the cargo ship's captain said the ACX crystal had signaled with flashing lights after the Fitzgerald suddenly steamed onto a course to cross its path. The container ship steered hard to starboard to avoid the warship, but it hit the Fitzgerald 10 minutes later at 1.30 a.m., according to a copy of Captain Renald Avancula's report to Japanese ship owner. The Diavanchi Investment Corporation. Now, this was supposedly reported by Reuters. Quote, the U.S. Navy declined to comment, and Reuters was not able to independently verify the account. But what is being said... What is, being implied by, what is being implied by this report is that the U.S. Navy ship intentionally got into the path, intentionally put itself in a destructive path of this massive container ship. A spokesman for the U.S. Navy 7th Fleet in Yokosuka, the Fitzgerald's home port, said he was unable to comment on an ongoing investigation. Spokesman for the Japan Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard, and ship owners also declined to make any comments. As Reuters reports, investigators will examine witness testimony and electronic data to determine how a Navy destroyer, and this is key, how a Navy destroyer fitted with sophisticated, redundant radar systems could be struck by a vessel more than three times its size. Another focus of the probe has been the length of time it took the ACX crystal to actually report the collision. The JCG says, the Japanese Coast Guard, says it was first notified at 2.25 a.m., nearly an hour after the incident. In his report, the ACX Crystal's captain said there was, quote, confusion on his ship's bridge, that it turned around and returned to the collision site after continuing for six nautical miles. As we reported three days ago, this article states, data obtained from the ACX crystal suggests the ship was on autopilot at the time of the collision, which has raised the specter that the incident was caused by sophisticated hackers. And while investigators say they found no evidence the collision was intentional, 
that the ship was relying on its computerized navigation system at the, team, at the time of the collision means hackers could have infiltrated into the ship's navigation system and steered it into the Navy ship. Now, it's making a faulty assumption there because remember now, remember they're saying here that, well, it could have hacked into the cargo ship. But what did the captain of the cargo ship say? He said, we signaled the destroyer. It was the destroyer who jutted, who jutted out into our location. Why is the assumption made, or is it the safer assumption to make, the more patriotic assumption to make, that it is hackers who hacked the cargo ship? Certainly hackers could never hack a U.S. destroyer, right? Though the collision off the coast of Japan could just as being caused by a malfunction or human error, if the system's warning signals were ignored, that does not seem to be the case, the article states. Now, here's where we get into the questions. Questions that we need to have answered. Simple questions to my mind, but things that I think really need to have a clear answer. First of all, I would suggest that as soon as you get the chance, you Google the pictures and look at the damage to the USS Destroyer. Now, imagine that destroyer running perpendicular if you can see it in your mind, like a T, T-boning. Imagine two cars. Imagine a car T-boning another car. You understand that these, these ships are not moving at massive amounts of speed. So how does that cargo ship hit and barely make any con course correction whatsoever and continue on its way? If it was on autopilot, how did it hit and not continue to plow right on through the destroyer? or at least come to a stop and shut down if it was on autopilot, I would assume there'd have to be some sort of autopilot malfunction, autopilot warning, autopilot correction of some sort. How does it hit it, back up, go around it, and nobody notice that? Now, here are some of the questions that, simple questions, but I think questions that need to be answered. Number one, how did the ACX crystal get that close? That really is probably the fundamental question. I mean, we are talking about a USS destroyer with some of the most sophisticated technologies that we have, some of the most redundant technologies that we have, and quite frankly, seamen that are geared and aware towards being uh, defensive of anything that gets around its ship. I mean, let's not forget for a second that we are in effect at war, right? I mean, thanks to Brother Bush, who took us to war with terrorism, the first time, mind you, by the way, in our nation's history that we've actually gone to war with an idea, but that's another topic for another time. It's not like there's not been attacks on our ships and servicemen around the world. Our young men and our young women in harm's way are well aware or should be well aware of ISIS, of Al-Qaeda, of Chechen rebels, of, uh, you name it, Somalian rebels, uh, Boko Haram, of Russia. How could it be... How can it be that this 29,000-ton tanker get past all this, the, the technological warning systems and alarms that are on board the ship? How can it get so close as to hit a USS destroyer? My second question, how could it hit a moving target broadside? Now, this to me is one of the most fascinating questions that no one is asking. Ships don't normally sit dead in the sea. They're moving. And records show that these ships were moving. 
Now imagine the sheer astronomical chance, even if you have the crystal, the ACX crystal, on autopilot. Let's give them that, which I think is a pile of horse manure, but let's give them that. Even if it was on autopilot, do you understand the astronomically high chances of everything falling in line to occur, to have a moving tanker, moving slowly, mind you, and a USS destroyer crossing its path to intersect at just the exact right moment. Can you see it in your mind? How could a 29,000-ton tanker T-bone a moving destroyer in the middle of the ocean? How does that happen? Question number three, how does it stop? I already asked this in a way, but how does the tanker not stop but continue on for another 30 plus minutes? How does it not stop? Now, granted, the destroyer is much smaller, but not that smaller. It's not like it ran over a John boat or Yoko Ono out there trying to catch her morning fishing, kayaking. I mean, how does it ram a destroyer and keep on going? My fourth question is this. One hour went by before there was a single distress call sent out. Now, my question is why? I realize that an hour is not a super long time during a time of emergency, but then again, it would have only taken minutes to recognize two clearly, sadly obvious facts. A, the captain quarters had been hit and he may be dead. Bingo. We got that one inside of five minutes. B, the ship was in trouble and flooding fast. Boom, you would have known that inside 10 to 15 minutes. No distress call, no warning, no nothing. Number four, my last question may be the most significant. How was the tanker not sunk? Now follow me with my thinking for just a minute. These sailors are warriors. They are trained to protect the ship. The captain has been injured. The ship has been rammed. Lives have been lost and the ship may be sinking. And not one single shot was fired by a destroyer. How did they know that it was not a terrorist attack? If they were communicating, if they were... Look, at, if, even if the men on the ACX crystal were asleep and it was on cruise control, you would have to imagine that at some point the USS destroyer was trying to contact it. I mean, this is just basic stuff. You can watch Star Trek and see that. That's how Khan got Captain Kirk. They got too close and he he was trying to, you have to watch it. It's great. It's wonderful. But he got too close and he ended up getting shot up. The Enterprise ended up getting shot up. This is basic one-on-one stuff here. How in the world did that tanker survive getting that close and not one single shot? How did they know that it wasn't a terrorist attack even more when it turned around and comes back 30 minutes later? How was it allowed to come back into the area? No missile fired, no air support called in, nothing. Ship rammed, captain almost dead, ship sinking, lives lost, and the destroyer sits there like a helpless beta male treading water. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you in the least? So what are, the, what are the options that we're left with? It could be an accident in the normal sense of the word. Sure. 
There was either a mass wave of gross and criminal and negligence on board the U.S. Navy ship, or there was a massive uh, simulation wave that shut down all technological and manual ability to see, or there was a coordinated intention on the part of someone or someones to bring the U.S. vessel into the direct and deadly path of that tanker. Now, here is the strange thought. If it was a terrorist, I submit to you that it's possible, nobody's looking at it, but it's possible that it was a terrorist on board the U.S. ship. A tanker cannot track down a U.S. destroyer. But could there possibly have been multiple actors all moving in concert on board the U.S. ship? Is it that far-fetched to think? We've had the Fort Hood shooter. We had the Navy Yard shooter. Is it? I think that it's possible that something is coming. Pure speculation, I know. But what's fascinating to me is how often, many times, incidents within the Navy are a precursor to more nefarious and global instances. Remember, the Navy and its accidents have an uncanny way have an uncanny way of, oh, how would you say it? Uh, they have a very uncanny way of foreshadowing things to come. Remember, it was the sinking of the Lusitania that got us into World War I. Remember, it was the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, which was not a surprise attack that got us into World War II. Remember, it was the supposed attack on a Navy ship in the Gulf of Tonkin that got us into Vietnam. The attack on the USS Liberty gave us reason to intervene in the Six-Day War with Israel. The attack on the USS Cole was a warning by Al-Qaeda before there was the amazing ability to fly planes into only two buildings and yet bring down three in exactly the same way. And then, of course, there is the record of the Navy's experiment and matter of transference and cloaking in the Philadelphia experiment. And let's not forget the creme de la creme of flight TWA that crashed, where massive amounts of witnesses saw something shooting up at a plane. But of course, they were all wrong. And the NTS was right. And that's why you have to shut your phones off because your cell phone might bring down another plane. You see where I'm going with this? Was there something? Is there something going on? I hope not. It's tragic enough that we lost seven sailors. But remember this non-event. Remember this right-hand event. Because my gut tells me there is something going on in the left.